Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire. It is a completely beautiful day, and when this recording is over, I'm off to play cricket. Good morning. It's um, Richard Heller in uh, South East London, which is uh, also bathed in sunshine, and I wish I were playing cricket, uh, though some fiend stole my cricket bat during the week, and uh, I've yet to recover it. I've told you, Richard, that if you need, I have three cricket bats, and if you need one to carry you through the season and beyond, I'm, you're very welcome to, to make use of one of my three. And We've brought today uh, back a guest because something amazing is happening, I believe, in world cricket. I think all English, every cricket lover everywhere knows that something special has happened to New Zealand. The way New Zealand has dealt with England, the way that it survived the loss of really sig- significant players like McCullum and gone on to, to be even greater than before. And we're looking forward to the world final of Test cricket. So welcome. David Leggett, for a second innings uh, with the podcast. Hello, Peter. Richard, thank you very much for having me back. And hopefully my uh, second innings contribution will um, at least match, if not better, the first innings. Well, you told last time you were on, a few months ago, you told us about an unknown figure called Conway. You said, watch out for him. <laughs> That's right. Now, now the cricket world knows all about him, don't they? It's a... Um, it's been a remarkable story, actually. He, um, as you know, came from South Africa. Apparently, he was considered a sort of a schoolboy prodigy, but couldn't climb the ladder to what we would call the top level over there. And uh, so he he looked around at his options. Um, after He had a stint at Somerset in the second 11, by the way, and he tried various other places and nobody seemed to be that interested in him. So he had a couple of mates called Malcolm Nofell and uh, Michael Rippon from South Africa. They'd come out to New Zealand, raved about New Zealand, and they said the cricket's not half bad either. And they suggested, why don't you come over and have a look? So August 2017, he packed up his bat and pads and what have you and came over with his then girlfriend, got a job in Wellington as a club professional, uh, and then a vacancy opened up in the Wellington team because um, I think it was Tom Blundell from memory uh, got injured. So he gets called in uh, in his second, I think, or third innings, he makes a century. This is first class in the in the first class team uh, and hasn't looked back. And ever since then, he's, every step forward he's taken, he's made substantial runs. He made a 300 um, against Canterbury in one game and um, all this sort of thing. And he people started talking the way it does. And there's a bit of a buzz that builds up and up. And then there's an expectation that he's going to go all the way. So that's really his story. And then at every point, of course, people say, well, is he that good? Will he be able to continue? Or is he going to reach his level? And now he's got his chance at the very top, double century. Thank you very much at Lord's. And uh, he's got a technique that's pretty solid. Looks like he can survive pretty well. Seems to have the ability to push the runs on once he's got himself settled. And apparently a very nice guy uh, who I suspect is absolutely loving his his situation at the moment. And, and he'll be thinking, boy, that was a very good plane I got on back in Johannesburg three or four years ago. 
It is a remarkable story. He scored now 300 in his first, over 300 in his first three test innings, which puts him up yep. in a very, very select um, band indeed. And um, I'm beginning to wonder if, he'll, if he wants a target, he might emulate Javid Meandard. Javid Meandard's average never, f- test average never fell below 50 in his entire career. So that's um, sort of an incentive mm. for him. Well, there's a, there are a few South Africans who've been here, like Neil Wagner, obviously, and quite a few kicking around in the first-class game. So I, I think there seems to be a sort of a steady trek of South African players coming over here. A lot of them don't make it, of course, and they'll kick around in maybe senior club cricket or they'll kick around in, in maybe in first-class level without making much of a ripple. But every now and again, you get, you get one who... Um, BJ Watling's another one. Came to New Zealand, play, he's, from Northern, no, he's from Northern Transvaal, I think. Came to New Zealand as an opening batsman, got into test cricket, then became wicketkeeper, and you know the rest of the story. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's quite a popular sort of route to take. Colin de Grandholm is another one. So there are a few around. Grant Elliott, I should stop because the names keep tripping off my tongue. <laughs> well, it's a great asset to New Zealand cricket, but it's... I think it's a, a sort of tribute to New Zealand that they're becoming that they've become so well integrated into the sort of New Zealand setup, and that they are so strongly identified now with with New Zealand. Uh, they're not regarded as sort of aliens and interlopers. Yeah, quite quite agree, Richard. I suspect that they they get welcomed because essentially, well, that wouldn't have to sound too silly about it. We're a reasonably welcoming country, and if you come in and you don't have any friends and and you, you get into a team, it doesn't have to be cricket, it could be anything, you get welcomed and you get a chance to put your foot in the door and, and see what you can do. So uh, I suspect we are quite a popular country for, for cricketers, particularly those who haven't made it and want to come out. Indians, of course, there's a pile of Indians have come out. There's almost an Indian league in Auckland. Uh, there's so many of them. Uh, Ajaz Patel, of course, is another yes. man who's made a terrific impact. Come from Mumbai. So tell us about him. Ajaz Patel. I don't know that much about him, to be quite honest, Peter, but he's he's been around for a few years. He's not a, a spring chicken by any means, but he um, he had an early reputation playing for Central Districts as a guy who would come in on two paces, just bowl flat into leg stump, try to keep it as tight as possible, not looking to invite the drive and, and invite the batsman down the pitch. But he's kept taking wickets. And if you say, what's the most important currency for a, a bowler, I'd suggest it's taking wickets. And um, so he's now got his chance because um, others have been tried and have come up short. And he's pretty well regarded. Bowled well, I thought, in the first innings in this test. And he's and spinners, of course, could bowl well into their 30s. So uh, he could be around for a wee while. But spinners don't tend to do that well in New Zealand. Go overseas, it's a bit different. Hmm. There's, uh, you've got uh, what have we got? Ish Sudi. There's another um, player of Indian yep. origin, isn't there? In the um, yep. in the in the current squad, isn't there? Ravindra. Hmm. That's right. He's a young boy from Wellington who's an all rounder. Sodi has basically been hmm. restricted now to T20s, where he seems to do quite well. A leg spinner. Yeah. Apparently, very promising. A an all rounder, a batting all rounder whose bowling is useful, as distinct from the other way around. So he's he's one to look for in the future, and there's a few coming through in sort of under nineteen type level. So um, I think you're going to see a few more of these coming into the game. It is amazing that New Zealand has emerged as 
probably the best test playing will be will discover when the Indian final happens as arguably the best test playing country in the world, arguably the best. And you were, of course, robbed. And I feel it very strongly. You were robbed in the World Cup final. Um, yeah. Uh, bad luck and also, I think, bad rules. And yeah. um, so what has created this great, and I think great is now the word we're going to start to want to attach to the New Zealand team. It's one of the great test match teams of all time. Well, I think if you go back, um, it used to be said even 40-odd, 50 years ago, we'd have the odd good player like we had Bert Sutcliffe who was a wonderful batsman, John Reed. We would have a player like that, and there would be others around them who were nowhere near as good, but who could, if you like, good for a 30, but not an 80 or an, or 100. And then you had Hadley and Crow came along, both sort of world champions in their own in their own field. I might have told you that one of Crow's greatest, most tr- prized cricketing, um, what would you call it? Not trophies, but... Um, experiences is that in all his first class career he never he was never dismissed by Hadley and you think about Nottingham and uh, Somerset all this sort of stuff never defeated never beaten by him never removed and um, very proud of that fact Hadley doesn't talk about it so much but um, but there you go uh, and, and, and then you had a, a collection of players came in in the I suppose in the late 70s the 80s Jeff Howarth Jeremy Coney Lance Cairns, Ewan Chatfield, and Ian Smith. Pete Warren Lees was the, was a very good keeper, and basically they all sort of got together and they worked out that if everybody did their bit uh, and everybody held their catches, we could do okay. And I remember John Wright once said to me that Jeff Howarth was the first New Zealand captain who ever said to him in a team situation, "We can win this test. We can win this match." Earlier um, captains would say, if we play pretty well and we stick at it, we can get out of this with a draw. Howth was the first one who said, we can win this. And um, when you're armed with Crow and, and, and Hadley, you've got a pretty good spearhead. Uh, and from there, I think it's just steadily grown and another exceptional player would come and then another very good player. And they attach themselves to this to the, the body, if you like. And um, this is... Cutting it a bit short, but this is what you've now got. Where under McCullum there was a, a sea change in terms of he was because he's a um, he's very keen on a bet. He would say we're going to try and win this game and we'll go all the way down to the line before we have to pull up and settle for a draw. And this filtered through to the players, and there were one or two mishaps. And as McCullum admitted that, look, we could we'll lose a couple along the way, but stick with us, stick with this plan. And we'll we'll be okay. And this is what's happened. They won they won some terrific victories, and uh, the players, the next group of players who came in, bought into this, and um, that's what you've got. Where it's sort of built up and up to the stage, you've got things now where you have a very good group of Test cricketers, not just one or two. Are you saying that that uh, declaration, which is quite an eye catching uh, declaration in the first Test? was because Williamson had learnt from McCullum. To a degree. But also I suspect that the that Williamson is now extremely comfortable in his own skin because he is not of the same from the same cloth as McCullum. But he now feels very confident in the role. Uh, we are doing well under him. 
And I think also they felt, well, let's, let's see how this goes. We don't want the game to die. So let's throw out this, the bait and just see what happens. We'll get ourselves a good contest. And I couldn't believe England's reaction. I, I was just staggered by it, to be quite honest. It wasn't as though they were chasing 360 or something. It was, what, 270-odd? Mm. Three and a half and over, it should have been, you know, it should have oh. been a proper chase. Yeah. And I, I can only assume that Root was twitchy because he had so many young players and didn't want to didn't want to lose the first test of this sort of mini mini campaign and leading on to what they've got. And so the word went out, we'll just knuckle down, we'll we'll take the draw and move on. And I found I thought it was awful because when you think about I don't want to go on about COVID, but you think about the times that we're living in, you've got a chance to go and sit at a test match and what do you want to see? You want to see somebody showing the spirit and the heart and going out and trying to win a game. And if you lose it, I suspect if England had lost that game, let's say by 20 runs, but they'd given it a good lash, they wouldn't have been bollocked in the media the way that they might have done in the past because we're in these unusual circumstances. You want to give people a bit of a lift, lift the spirits. That would have been the way to do it. So I, I kind of... Uh, I, I was just very disappointed for England's fans, actually, as much as anything else. Mm. I'd like to go back um, to the origins of um, New Zealand players. We've talked about um, the imports from South Africa and, and other countries. We've talked about the Indian origin players. But um, I think in the present team, we haven't talked about players of Maori origin, the players of um, Pacific Island origin. I think they've... They were only, they've only got two representatives in the present team. Trent Bolt has Maori descent and um, Ross Taylor's Pacific Island um, That's right. descent, yep. which is a big contrast to rugby, which has managed to recruit from sure. um, from uh, you know both groups. And I just wondered, is, is this a contentious issue in New Zealand, the way that the underrepresentation of Afro-Caribbean and Asian people is in English cricket? And if it is, how is Cricket New Zealand handling it? Well, to give you an idea on that, Richard, I can remember a conversation several years ago with the then National Chief of Selectors, a guy called Don Neely. And when he retired from the position, I had a chat with him and I said, what do you think was your selection that gave you the most pride or the most pleasure? And he thought for a moment and he said, Murphy Sewer. Now, you may remember the name Murphy Sewer, Pacific Island, left arm, sort of lively yep. bowler, um, Pacific Island boy. Um Got in, and Neely was extremely proud of the fact that he'd been able to get him into the team, and he deserved it. There wasn't a question of of pushing him in ahead of when he should have been uh, been in, but um, he felt that that was a, a sort of a almost a landmark um, situation. Problem that you've got is that um, they don't tend to gravitate towards cricket that much Pacific Islanders and Maoris. They will tend to play, they, they love, as a, and I'm talking generalisations here to be fair, but they love the physicality of the rugby or the rugby league. Uh, they're often big, strong lads, uh, and that's where they like to go. Also, um, softball, which a lot of them play, they follow the brothers and sisters. That's what they do. And when they're growing up at 9, 10, 11, they follow this, and we all followed our older brothers or sisters to a degree, I guess. And cricket's missed out a bit on that. They have tried to be fair. They've named New Zealand school girls and school boy Maori teams in the last couple of years to play games. Um, I remember talking to Bolt as you as you mentioned, Richard, 
about this a couple of years ago, and he admitted he was quite um, he regretted not having pushed his Maori identity more when he got into the New Zealand team and as he was progressing up the ladder. And he felt that he, if he had his time again, he probably would, just because it's an important part of him and his family and his upbringing and all that. But at the time, he was simply playing cricket and doing mm. well and thinking about the cricket. That's all, that, that's all that's concerning me. I'm not worried about these other sort of peripheral things. And um, so I think, in short, New Zealand have tried and are trying, but it's difficult, and there's just not there's not the uptake that there is in some other sports. Mm. Hockey's an example; it has has quite a few as well. I'm intrigued by your mention of softball. Is softball a, a sort of professional competitor for, for cricket for other sports in New Zealand? Um, well, we've we've won the world title, men's world title, several times in oh. the last few years, mm. um, and we we do play it pretty well. It's it's not. It, you wouldn't say it's it's a challenger to cricket standing as number one summer sport, but it's a solid presence is probably mm. the best way to put it. They have pretty good numbers. And of course, for some, they have gone on to play baseball. And there's a chap just this week who's um, who has signed for the uh, New York Mets. That's right. Yeah. So they can see it. They can see a step ladder there as well. But no, it's not, not a challenger to cricket, but it's certainly a solid presence there. Mm. I, it's just to sort of uh, go against that a bit. I, I, I well, the Maori is a great rugby team, of course, greatest probably in the yep. world history. I don't like the way it's taken Pacific Islanders. You know, Papua New Guinea has weakened. You know, you it's although it's taken so many great players from the Pacific Islanders, it's weakened rugby in the Pacific Islands in that way too. Yeah, that's a fair point, uh, Peter. I, I, I um. I think there's an argument the Aussies have um, have been a bit naughty as well, and I and I know that if you take uh, the likes of Tuilangi and people have gone and played in England, or the number eight for Wales, I think he came from Samoa or Tonga from memory. So there's a bit of it goes on around the place, but the the other problem that you've got is that what do you do if a an 18 year old comes over and he's staying with his family in Auckland and he decides I really want to be an All Black. I don't want to play for Samoa. I really want to be an All Black and try and win the world title or whatever. You can't say, well, I'm sorry. You, you, if, if they've fulfilled the criteria, whether it be residential, whether it be that you have not played for the country of your birth, um, and also a bit of greed on the part of New Zealand rugby, if they see somebody who's distinctly promising, they're not going to turn their backs on them. So it, there's, it, it's a it's a complicated sort of, issue that one Peter but it's, it's certainly a they've had a huge presence in all black teams and uh, it'll continue for some time to come I suspect. It isn't just New Zealand I mean I've always felt that it's great pity Graham Hick became in England rather than a Zimbabwe cricketer I think he'd yeah. done much better for Zim and Owen Morgan yep. is a really interesting case in point for England you know you've got Ireland which is gravely weakened by Owen Morgan who's one of the probably the best captain of modern the modern era in one day games anyway. Yeah. And the great batsman. And what what you know, what that would have done to widen the appeal of cricket if you'd left him. Yeah. And you know, like in India might try and nick Rashid Khan from Afghanistan. You can see that happening or yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Which is a terrible yeah. thing for cricket generally. Mm. Absolutely. The Irish are an interesting case. Didn't that chap Boyd Rankin play a game or two for England? He did, yeah. He did. A couple yeah. of years back. 
who was their sort of spearhead bowling spearhead, I seem to remember, the Irish? He was indeed, yep. Ireland seemed to be taking some forward steps and they seemed to be a fairly proactive cricketing country. Any chance they get, they'll grab it as far as I can see, which is great. And they've got some decent players coming through. So um, more power to them. Has there ever been, before we leave this sort of general area, has there ever been anything like, you know, the Ollie Robinson case in New Zealand cricket? Ollie Robinson has been suspended pending an investigation of offensive and racist tweets, uh, which he's admitted, which he sent out when he was um, uh, in the very early stages of his cricket career uh, as a player in his late teens. And um, it's a great shame because he's um, marred his very impressive test debut. And it's now become a uh, you know, a, a contentious issue in English cricket, partly because the um, the culture minister, Mr. Dowden, intervened in it unbidden and um, took the ECB to task for a heavy-handed penalty and linked it to the sort of culture war that the, this government has launched against um, a sort of woke culture. And it's accused the ECB, of all people, of um, of falling in with this. So, you know, it's become a very politicised issue, and it's not just, unfortunately, about one young man making a mistake. I don't, I don't recall anything like that. I find that's a, um, mm. that's a, that's a, uh, a strange business. Mm. And um, I had, kept, had this feeling there's a very heavy, heavy bet was used by the cricketing, uh, by the ECB, I guess, to, to squash him. Although I, I haven't seen these tweets and whatever that he did back then. I have heard some of the content of it, and it sounds pretty awful. I suppose you're talking about, what, a 15-year-old, 16-, 17-year-old? He was a little bit older when some of them were there, but certainly okay. it's, you know, it was quite a, you know, it was another phase of his life. I think it's worth saying, putting it in a wider national context, that if, say, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson had been playing for England, he would have been suspended quite without a question because he's made dreadful uh, racist remarks about black people uh, I'm not going to use the phrases he's used, and of course against the Muslims in his newspaper articles, and all of those would have caused any England player to be automatically suspended by the ECB. And he has also had a very lax approach to Tory MPs who retweet the far right, Tommy Robinson, for example, that including ministers. And so the ECB is applying much more severe standards to England cricketers who than Mr Johnson as Tory party leader and prime minister does to uh, British Tory MPs and councillors. Can I ask you two guys about, I'm, inter- I'm quite interested in this, do you, do you believe, because I've heard there are other names that may come out of other people who have been linked in with, with uh, unpleasant tweets, what's going to happen in the end? How's this going to play out, do you think? I think they'll have to apply the same standards to any other players who are uncovered in this way. It would be very inconsistent, and I think it will be the same thing. Not a punishment, because there's nothing yet to punish, but it will be suspension um, pending pending an investigation. And Michael Holding, very... uh, ..speaks with great authority on on these sorts of issues as urge the ECB to make the investigation very quick and get the action, um, you know, out in the, get the action completed openly so the players can move on with their lives. Yeah. And I think there is a lot of admiration, leaving aside the issue of the tweet, but obviously Robinson is a young man. He suddenly comes under massive pressure for this. And the way he conducted himself as on the cricket field 
uh, in the first test was terrific. I mean, he really uh, played brilliantly and and kept his mind clear, and that was uh, that was admirable. I thought. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure he'll, you know he's a talented player, and I'm sure he'll he'll come back um, when the when the process is completed. I think he was, as I said, he was in the early stages of his counter career when he when these tweets were first done. They were a lot of them in the context of what keeps getting called banter um, or bounce, yes, yes, <laughs> you know, and all sorts of rubbish. Quite honestly, is talked and said in the name of you know of banter. But um, you know, the, uh, as we see, the problem is that these things last forever on on social media, and they. They um they come back to haunt um players and he might have when he was selected and they I think the ECB is, is looking into this they might look at the kind of protection that that um that newly selected selected players get um you know from their their youthful mistakes on social media and um and try and cleanse them from the record before they get or get them to cleanse them off the record before they before they begin. I slightly disagree with you on that. I think that it is. It is a serious matter. You can't pretend that it never happened. And from all reports, I haven't seen the tweets themselves. They, if they were racist, they were unforgivable. But what I do find difficult is the way in which one standard is applied to mature British politicians. You know, the British Prime Minister writing in his Daily Telegraph, in a column in the Daily Telegraph, using dreadful racist words or in his novels. I can't even, they're so bad, I can't even repeat them on a podcast uh, and that seems to be acceptable there's never been any rebukes to him uh former ones at any rate or you know disciplinary from the tory party um and the same applies to dozens of tory mps hundreds of tory mps and councillors and here's um a young man aged 18 who said something unforgivable but you know he wasn't a politician and, and he's being held to a far higher standard than, uh, say, Nadine Dorries, the health minister, who retweeted uh, Tommy Robinson. Well, in a way, it's understandable and may sound cynical, but we uh, we do we are as a nation more respectful towards our sports people at the moment than we are to our politicians, and perhaps that's <laughs> that's one of the reasons why we do expect them oh. to be held to be to a higher standard. But it's it's this they're strange times, aren't they? Because I suspect that this may well have been going on. 30, 40, 50 years ago, but back then you didn't have microphones that close to the pitch, all these other things, and it would have gone on, but you just moved on back then. It wasn't something that would, would be raised and would be somebody would be held up to account for it in that sense. It just shows the times of how much the times have changed now, but you can't, uh, I, I, I don't think the argument that he was an 18 year old naive man really ha has uh, an awful lot to do with it. You, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube and um, I, I think it's a it's a great shame he bowled very well in the first test now that's a side issue to um, to what we're talking about but and an answer to your question uh, Richard or Peter I, I, I can't recall anything like this happening in New Zealand cricket certainly not that has got this amount of traction it is uh, the other thing we should say in this before finishing this off I mean Gareth Southgate uh, the uh, England football manager has been absolutely wonderful on this general issue, you know, and his great yeah. statement about racism in football was something which I think will be go back, you know, his piece of epic 
oratory, which uh, will never be forgotten. Right. So, David, we we're coming up uh, at the end of the the, the second test uh, to a, a unique event in world cricket, which is a championship final to determine the the best test playing side in the world, and it's between New Zealand and India. And I have to lay my cards on the table. I I'm going to be supporting New Zealand. I think you, you, the way you've played cricket uh, over the last few years has been utterly wonderful. I think you've reinvented the game. There's something about the charm with which you play the game as well, which really turns a lesson, I think, to some other nations. And um, to, 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 and this, how, tell us how you think you're going to get on uh, when the game starts. When well, is the game start, actually, uh, David, just as a matter of fact? It's on next weekend. Yeah. And uh, look, I, um, I think New Zealand's got a pretty good chance. I don't know much about the, the, the standard... Southampton pitch conditions, but I gather it's quite a good pitch, quite good for batting. That and stop me here if I'm wrong at all, but that's my understanding of it. Um, they have made no secret of the fact that this test is a warm up without denigrating England, but this is a warm up towards the championship. And this is why, if you look at the players they've left out, they've left out Southie, they've left out Jamison. I, I've written down about five names that they have left out who will probably come They've had six changes, which is a, some sort of yeah. record, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably mm. says a bit about the depth that we've got at the moment with mm. a guy like Will Young coming in and, and doing pretty well yesterday. Um, See that but again. this is what they're pinning it on. It's, it's this game coming up because I suppose they think back a little bit to the last couple of World Cup finals um, and think, well, we could actually have had two titles by now. Uh, rightly or wrongly, um, but I think they feel as though they've got a pretty good chance because the Indians haven't been here. They haven't played. They haven't had much or any lead-up play in England to this to this game. The New Zealanders have, and I think they feel as though they're in a pretty good space at the moment. And I'm st- starting to use uh, in vogue phrases, but I, I think they feel as though they've got as good a chance as they're ever going to have um, if they can get it right. And I know that I, I will guarantee you, even though he's badly out of form, that Ross Taylor will be picked because he got through to 45 or something last night, mm. battled and battled. And I thought there are England batsmen in their first innings and at Lords, they should sit down and, and forget about Williamson or whatever. They should watch a chap like Taylor who had to grit and graft and, and ride his luck and what have you for about an hour before things started to come good for him and he could play a few of his shots. And I thought that was a very good lesson for young players who look for a boundary of ball because this is T20 time um, and every ball should go to the boundary. Well, no, that's not right. And Taylor is an, is an aggressive, assertive batsman anyway, but he had to, I think he was on three off about 29 balls or something like that, where a young English player may have been tempted to have a swish and he's gone. But Taylor just knuckled down. It looked awful at times, but he got through. And there he was at the end of the day on 45, 46. And there's a huge lesson for young players in that. So it's short answer to your question is I think they'll go pretty well. I think their issue, they may have an issue whether they play the spinner. Um, I always like to have a spinner in the team. I bet Joe Root wouldn't mind one either at the moment, just quietly. Um, mm. But they they may well look to play four fast bowlers. Um, so... I'm not sure. I, I think it's a fairly easy team to pick, and I think they will back themselves. But as the New Zealand way is, 
were very understated. So you won't hear them shouting from the rooftops, this is our time, uh, just watch us go now. They don't do that. Even All Blacks aren't, don't talk like that. And All Blacks win 98% of their games. They never talk like that. It's always giving respect to the opposition. Um, but now with the view that if we play well, we feel that we'll be okay to win. But they don't. They would never dismiss the opposition as being you know, not as good or anything like that. They, it's just not in the New Zealand way. We just don't do that. So um, makes us a little bit different from our near neighbours, I should say. <laughs> I must say that is something about the way... It's another thing I love about these, this current New Zealand team. You compare yourselves to Australia or actually to England, which copy, has copied an awful lot of the Australian cricket culture, the aggressive sledging, yep. the sort of remorseless professionalisation at the centre. Um, you know, the Australian cricket board, then the England cricket, that create the English cricket board, this right. pool of players. Right. There's something about the way you play which actually is a bit of a unspoken rebuke to that rather humorless branding of, of yep. English and Australian yep. cricket. Yeah, I, I can remember about three or four years ago, things McCullum was very big on, we're going to play the game the right way. So we're not going to have anybody having a pop at us for sledging and what have you. And there were a couple of leading players in the New Zealand team then who were not averse to giving out a bit of free advice. And that stopped. Their form didn't fall away. They were still good bowlers or good batsmen, but they had changed the sort of way they were going about things. There was a time when it got a bit silly. I remember in Australia where um, one of their batsmen made a, made a century or, or an 80 or something. When he was out, about five New Zealand players ran over to where he was walking off to give him a pat on the back or a handshake. And I thought, that's a bit silly. That's taking it too far. There's, there's a time and a place for that, which is the dressing room. Um, you don't need to be ostentatious about it. And I noticed that that stopped fairly quickly. I think by the end of that series, that was gone. So um, it's just the way that they, they play the game to enjoy it. And they know that there'll be teams that will beat them. And they'll also have good days themselves. Uh, and they, I think they feel as though they are laying a platform for those who are now... 15, 16, 17, coming through. This is the way you can play the game and you can still win without being silly and, and, and gobbing off uh, repeatedly. So it's a good place to be in, I think. It's, um, it must be a much... I was just intrigued by what you say about, you know, example being set to teenagers. We've, you know, there's a lot of comment in, um, particularly in Australia, that the... The environment for young players, for children, and young players, is terrible right now. Oh, awful! Yeah, yep. and um, yep, you're right. Yeah. It's actually not very. It's not always very pleasant in England either. Even for for young kids, there are a lot of overexcited, yeah. a lot of overexcited parents and um, and players. Yep. And uh, you know, uh, you're umpiring kids match, and you know decisions get yep. um, you know get objected to, and. Um, you know, and, and dad starts swearing at you for your decisions. It's not a very, it, it's all wrong anyway. Yeah. Richard, I, I have no doubts whatever that if a young lad came into the New Zealand setup now, and if very early on he started speaking out of turn and getting a bit big for his boots, someone like Williamson uh, or even a Saudi, um, senior players would take him aside and say, listen, chum, this isn't the way we do it, you know. Pull your head in uh, and follow the protocols of your of your team, and you'll do just fine. 
And I'm absolutely certain a conversation like that would happen if you ever got somebody in that situation, which I think is to their immense credit. Definitely. Um, David, what do you think would happen to New Zealand crickets following domestically uh, and to players' earnings uh, in particular if they did win the World Test Championship? Um, you know, absolutely major, probably the biggest trophy in cricket when it comes to New Zealand um, yep. after some near misses. What's that going to do to the team standing at home? Oh, I think, I think it, would, it would help significantly. We are still a very small pond, Richard, so, mm. so it's not as though suddenly we're going to overtake rugby, as, a, as an example. We're not going to become the country's runaway most popular sport. It would certainly help in terms of playing numbers. It would certainly help in terms of, of school kids taking the game up and school girls, I should say. Um, but I've long had a view that New Zealand cricket is not what you would call sexy to the rest of the, of the cricketing world. Uh, I mean, I think back, for example, to the West Indies in the 1980s, the early 90s, where you had people like Richardson, Greenwich, Richards, who were Lara, who were huge entertainers, hit the ball hard, great to watch, and they'd be snapped up in any team that, that could get hold of them. And then you've got your fast bowlers at that time, the Ambroses and the Marshalls and what have you. Uh, ditto. So I don't think we can compare with them in terms of, of appeal or crowd appeal. I can remember there was a, not long ago Martin Gupta was hitting sixes for fun um, and couldn't get picked up in, I think it was the IPL or it might have been the um, the Australian one because there were other players that they fancied more because they were a bit more, whatever, personality, entertaining, whatever it happened to be. So he wasn't really looked at from that perspective. Um, I, I, I think it will certainly help the game in New Zealand if we were to win it probably put them up for sports team of the year or uh, whatever it is, um, New Zealand sportsman of the year. But uh, I don't know. We operate, as I say, below the radar. So it's not as though you're going to get a street parade <laughs> up Queen Street or anything like right. that, cavalcade like that. There won't be anything along those lines. Um, it will give the game a jab in the arm domestically. No question about that. Internationally, I think that players around the world know that New Zealand are a pretty handy team. So I don't think... The Australians might be the one exceptions, but I think by and large, mm. the other countries all know New Zealand have got good players. They play a good brand of cricket, and we know we're going to get a tough contest when we come up against them. Financially, uh, there may well be bump ups in terms of fees for the players, um, and they're, they're better played now, paid now than they have ever been mm. uh, in the game. I'll give you a, an, an idea if you if you like. Um, what they're getting at the moment, um, you see, a basics, and I'm, I have to be sort of approximate here because I'm a wee bit out of touch with this, but Williamson, and think in terms of um, $2 equals a pound, close enough, mm. Williamson has paid around about $225,000 basic. On top of that, he's got his match fees, test ODI 2020, um, and they're done in bands so that, for example, mm. you have your top one, then you have two, three, then you have blah, 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 blah. Down to 18, 19, 20. You have 20 players uh, on contracts. And the, the, the bottom three are around about $100,000 plus your add-ons. So um, you can do a guy like a guy like Williamson. And the next the next category would be Bolt, Southey, Latham. You have people like Conway and Jamison will be rapid risers. 
And guys like Wagner or Watling, uh, who are basically one-form players, will be lower down. So mm. they're, they're, they're pretty well paid relatively, certainly relatively to a few years ago. Mm. On the international scale, they'll probably still be fairly low. Uh, mm. I don't know what the English would get, but it'll be certainly more than that. Sure. Mm. Um, is there a big gap between in earnings between those? I think there would be between those who have IPL contracts or played in the IPL and those who haven't. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, actually, absolutely. I think the IPL is about five hundred thousand hmm. dollars a competition. So if you say that Williamson is on, I don't know. Let's round them up to around about three hundred and forty odd, three fifty, something like that. Uh, then you add in five hundred grand. Thank you very hmm. much. Uh, you're doing pretty well. And the other thing about the IPL is they had that pro rata system where it was that you were only paid if you were picked, if you were in the 11. Mm. Then they changed it and they said, well, you are as long as you're available for selection, then you get paid. It's only if you're injured that we won't pay you. And this is where you get a bit of jiggery-pokery goes on and players will simply say, even if they've got a... a <laughs> <laughs> They're almost on crutches. Yeah. They'll say, "Oh no, he just wasn't picked for this particular game. He won't. Uh, he won't suit the pitch or whatever." So um, there's all sorts of shenanigans go on there. But uh, no, at the moment they're being paid pretty well, relative, certainly relative to ten years ago. I'm glad to hear it. They, they certainly deserve it. Deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Rise of um, New Zealand's men's cricket. Uh, its recent success. What sort of impact has it had on? Um, Women's on the women's game in in New Zealand has it improved? Has it sort of lifted that at all in terms of participation and um, in spectatorship? Well, not just a few weeks ago, Richard. There were two New Zealand versus Australia women's T Twenty games shown live on the biggest sports channel in New Zealand. They were doing double headers with the men's team against you know, whoever, and. Uh, that was a big step forward. The short answer to your question is yes, there has been some corollary and a, and a, and a spin-off to them. The biggest day, I should point out, for New Zealand women's cricket was December 23, 2000. And I remember it very well uh, because I was watching it. And uh, it was down at Lincoln, just outside Christchurch. World Cup final versus the Aussies. We got 184. They got 180. And we won with five balls to spare by mm. five runs. And, and the crowd went, I can still remember the scenes, the crowd went ballistic. And suddenly these women were getting um, the adulation they'd never had before because a lot of people didn't think of women's cricket as anything to particularly rave about. We had some good players then. Went through a little bit. There's been some peaks and troughs since then. But if I say to you now that we have people like Sophie Devine, Susie Bates, Amy Satterthwaite, Leah Tahu, who's rated the fastest bowler in the women's game. Young Amelia Kerr, who's a leg spinning all around her, made a debut at 16. Huge inspiration for schoolgirls. There's a lot of schoolgirls now who are playing cricket. So the state of the game is that they are in, they are kept in the top, they're the hardcore top five in any order you like, Australia, England, India, New Zealand, South Africa. And uh, they're in there. But they have, they're a wee bit inconsistent at the moment. But they've certainly, it's certainly, um, I'd say, the biggest sport for women uh, outside netball that's going around. And they, they're doing pretty well. They push the women. New Zealand cricket push the women as much as they can. So they get, there is a big movement in New Zealand at the moment across the board for women's sort of equality in sport. And they're benefiting from that. 
where they're getting far more attention than they've ever had before. So they're, they're in a pretty good space at the moment. Glad to hear that too. Unlike England, the New Zealand Sports Ministry is quite a powerful one, isn't it? And the New Zealand Minister responsible for um, New Zealand Sports got other very important um, responsibilities in government. Yep. Would you like to take us through that and what sort of benefit that's had for New Zealand sport? Hmm. Yeah, he wears some very big hats, that's for sure, Grant Robertson. Um, he is He's a bit of a sports tragic. Um, <laughs> he was a ball boy at an All Blacks Lions test in 19... I think it's about the early 1980s. And there's photographic evidence of him running along with a big grin on his face as an All Black, running parallel, was about to score a try. That's by the by. He's a sport, He's a bit of a sports nut. Um, he's also the Deputy Prime Minister, um, and he's also the Finance Minister. So <laughs> for sport in general, it's a pretty good situation to be in where your guy uh, has some pretty big responsibilities across the board of, of government. Um, and he's a jovial chap. He's good at showing up as they all are, I suppose, at the, at the right time when there's a big announcement, which which is good for sport, he'll be there. Um, so I, I think we're pretty well served at the moment with um, the sports the sports ministry. But as I say, he's he's got a lot on his he's got a lot on his plate. Is he likely to is he likely to go to Southampton? Will that be and will that be a sign of confidence in the New Zealand team? And he expects to be expects to be greeting the winners. Yeah, well, I'm sure he'd like to be there. But given the fact that uh, right. there's various issues going on back here okay. within his government, when they aren't, they aren't doing very well in certain things, despite her her huge global appeal, um, our Jacinda's got a few issues she needs to sort out on the home front. So I don't think it would be a smart move to be over there at right. this time, Richard. Even even if Jacinda, they went, I remember Jacinda Arden said that she was traumatized by the 2019 uh, defeat, as well she might have been. All right. I'd have thought she was probably more traumatised by the uh, the massacre in Christchurch um, a couple of years ago than than uh, than the, <laughs> the World Cup final. Well, there she but, responded, uh, but with great uh, with great dignity and compassion and wisdom. I felt to that. Oh, she's got she's got some very she's she's very clever, uh, and she was brilliant when when the uh, we went through um, the shooting and what have you. She did a very good job and. She sort of kept the country together, if I could put it that way, so that people who would not necessarily be natural Labour voters liked what they saw, a genuine, caring, compassionate person. Um, but what happens with these things, I think, Peter, is that if you, you can have a, a, a glowing period where your star is in the ascendancy, etc., etc., but then when it comes to cold, hard economic realities... Uh, people stop and go, hang on a second, that's all well and good, but what's she done about the housing crisis, etc., etc.? So she's got a work cut out, but she's ahead by so much at the moment, and the opposition are floundering, keep tripping over their own feet. And I would say now she'll get back in for the next term, albeit probably with a re- reduced majority, but um, no, she's look, she's generally speaking, she's doing pretty well, and she is very popular. So she's she was brought up in PR, so she knows how to do a sound bite, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So she's pretty impressive um, live. Three-year terms you have there, don't you? Correct. Yeah, yep. correct. So when, when's the next um, general election? It's two. Th- what are we? Twenty-one. Uh, it's twenty-three. Okay. So yep. she's got another full year to try to sort out the various messes that are going on here. 
Right. Mm. I'd like to go on to the Beige Brigade, and I was very glad to see yes. that the New Zealand had a legendary um, strip in the early 80s, didn't they, of, um, which was regarded as the worst <laughs> cricket strip ever devised, sort of beige and brown. And uh, yes. it was adopted by the fans, wasn't it, As uh, later yep. on as the Beige Brigade, and it got a revival just um, just recently in the in last series. Richard, they're, they're hugely popular. If you take a look at the at the TV in the next two or three hours, I will guarantee you, you will see some of those jerseys in the crowd. My son's got one. He's very proud of it. He's he's over there in the crowd somewhere with his with his mates. But um, uh, very very popular. Could never work out why they went for um, the colours that they did. Mm-hmm. Struck me as very strange. But then again, black and white's probably not very exciting. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a beige brigade. Um, I noticed you mentioned um, earlier about is it akin to the Barmy Army, for example? And the answer is no. It's more of a cottage industry, really. It was started by a couple of guys who are cricket nuts uh, in their sort of, I suppose, in their thirties. Um, it has grown, and they have they're quite good at marketing themselves um, in the sense that you will also see quite a few um, yacht skippers caps. White yacht skippers' caps on young heads, and that is an idea they had um, to celebrate the fact that Kane Williamson, two or three years ago, there was a saying that was used by commentators occasionally: "Here comes Kane Williamson to steady the ship." Yeah. So these are simply called "steady the ship" caps, <laughs> and they they've sold thousands of these things. They go around the country every summer. They put on nights at pubs or or at clubs. Target audience about the mid twenties to to late thirties. They have a strong link with a radio station, which is rock music radio station, where they're very big on the likes of Led Zeppelin, Metallica, AC/DC, and that's their target audience. And they do it very well. Um, they in this instigated a rugby versus cricket clash for charity T Twenty game, which. Raised quite a bit of money, actually. Uh, was got live TV coverage the last two years. It was done by these guys. Um, and they also they have set up a thing called the uh, Alternative Commentary Collective, where they provide commentary on T20s or one-day games or rugby games as well for people who are not necessarily interested in listening to a test match special type of commentary, shall we say. It's a bit wild and woolly and um, and a bit uh, racy. I don't think any of us... I've listened to it once for about 10 minutes. Um, and I don't. I think it's fair to say that you wouldn't want to switch your uh, your radio to it. Mm. But they certainly have a presence. And every, every summer, they're there and people know who they are. And those who want to can tune in and listen. But they've, they've certainly made, a, made their presence felt. Basically, just they go along and they wear their regalia to games... They have functions and and uh, nights out and and they but they're very good at they're very good because they're involved in the media they're very good at getting their message across and presenting themselves and um, so they are uh, yeah they they are very popular of a certain type shall we say hmm. I think it says something about New Zealand's cricket followership that the um, yeah, the sort of travel you know they've got a section of travelling. Travelling supporters, travelling fans that 
Yep. Identify with um, a cricket strip because it's regarded as so, so awful. awful. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it shows a sense of humour and we, yeah, self-deprecation. It does. We, we've had a couple of duds over the over the years, but um, we had one I remember which had white shirts with black like wickets on the mm. back, and unfortunately, halfway through the game, three of the players' wickets started hanging off the shirt <laughs> as they were starting to fall off. And players were running around with half a number hanging <laughs> on the other half, falling down around their backside. So we have had some duds before. But there's a sort of an affection for that, partly because Beige Brigade was when Hadley was in his pomp. Oh. And all these other big names were playing. And that, I suspect, is part of the reason why it has retained its popularity. It it strikes back to very happy memories, very happy cricket memories. It's been such a lovely conversation and an important one. I think we're marking a formidable moment in, in global cricket, which is the emergence uh, of New Zealand as one of the dominant, if not the dominant, uh, cricketing nation. And how, how many of you are there maybe in New Zealand? Four, four million. Or five million? About, well, about four million. Four million, a nation of four million people may have produced the uh, greatest cricket team in today's world. Um, I just want to reveal something to you that I have a lot of cousins in South Island, mainly, um, and I've never been to visit them, but uh, I, I feel pretty proud of them at the moment. No, that's great, Peter. You ought, you ought to need, you need to know, Peter, as well, that the South Island is the more appealing of the two in terms of um, of being a tourist. And that's coming from a South Islander. Yeah. You're a South Islander too. It's I a bit am. sort of more remote, isn't it? It's a Born bit... and bred in Christchurch. That's right, yes. Yeah. yeah. So if you come out, you must go down and see them. It is sensational. I was just going to say, Peter, somebody once pointed out quite accurately that if you go to Christchurch, you can be swimming in the beach, swimming at the beach within a quarter of an hour, uh, and you can be skiing down the mountains within 80 minutes in the mm. other direction. So it's got a lot going for it. But I want to just wish you and uh, all of New Zealand the very best of luck uh, ahead of next week's world final. Um, Thank you, Peter. I'm going to be gagging for you, actually. I really <laughs> want you to win. I think you deserve it. Good luck. Well, I just hope if we get five good days um, and we can put our best foot forward, play up to the best level that we can, we'll give ourselves a decent chance. And that's not to knock the Indians, but we will give ourselves a decent chance. Well, I feel pretty confident myself that you'll um, you will do that. Uh, this is a seems to be a very this is a very good and a very resilient team. And as we said, the players playing now show you've got a great deal of strength and depth and. Um, I'm absolutely certain that uh, this team will be a credit to um, New Zealand and fully fit to be playing in this in this final, whatever happens. Well, here's hoping. Thank you for that, Richard. And thank you, Peter. I appreciate those thoughts. Well, on which note, it's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn, in sunny Wiltshire. I'm about to go off and put on my cricket whites. That's... <laughs> uh, I wish I were doing the same, but it's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, uh, in southeast London, bl in blazing sunshine. Looking at the current score in the test, I see 249 for three. Uh, so no wickets fallen uh, for New Zealand uh, in this little session of play.